Lord Jesus, we thank you for your amazing sacrificial love. How you stepped off your heavenly throne 2,000 years ago. You came to this broken world to redeem us. Lord, that was such a deep, awe-inspiring sacrifice that you made. It was something that we did not deserve, that we cannot earn. But we thank you for your love, your grace, the forgiveness that you lavish upon us, Lord. And I pray that we will not receive it in vain, that we will, that we will not take it for granted but that your love and grace will transform us from the inside out so that then your love and grace will flow through us into the lives of others around us. That in our relationships with others, as we face challenges and we face uh, disagreements and we face strife or people sin against us, Lord, please help us to extend grace and love and forgiveness just like you have given us through Jesus. And so today as we open the scripture, we pray that you will empower us to do these things, to live with grace, mercy, forgiveness, and love so that we can represent you faithfully in this world and glorify you. We pray these things in your name. Amen. You may be seated. So last week I was out of town and Mark Levier, a member of our church here, he gave the sermon. It was called The New Self. This idea of the new self is that after a person comes to faith in Christ, there should be a transformation that takes place in their lives. Part of the passage that Mark spoke on said that you should put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and that you should put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. So put off the old and put on the new. The imagery that the Apostle Paul is using here is that of getting dressed, putting on clothing, that you're to put off the old clothes, put off the, the dirty clothes, put off the old self that is characterized by the ways of this world. And instead, you should put on new clothes, put on clean clothes, put on the new self that is characterized by righteousness and love and goodness. And, and so, so the image here is that of getting dressed. Now, obviously, this is an image. It is a metaphor, but I thought about distinctive types of clothing that we can wear as humans. So I have two up here. I have a white dress here. When do you typically see someone wearing a white dress like this? A wedding. It's a bride who wears a white dress like this at her wedding. We have another distinctive set of clothing. When do you see someone wearing something like this? If they're cycling, you may be thinking, I would not be caught dead in something like this, especially with skin-tight shorts. But the reality is that if you are a pretty dedicated road cyclist, odds are good you're going to be wearing something like that. Now, when someone puts on a distinctive set of clothing like this, it identifies them a bit differently than if they were wearing street clothes. If you see someone wearing that white dress like that, a woman, and you're at a wedding, you can be assured that is the bride. If you see someone wearing clothes like this, you can be assured most likely they're a bicyclist. Now Paul in Ephesians chapter 4 is not talking about weddings and he's not talking about bicycling. He's talking about what it means to live life as a Christian. And so the question is, if we are to be clothed with new self in Christ, what does that look like? We know what a bride looks like. We know what a cyclist looks like. What should a Christian look like. 
Well, today we are going to be looking at a passage in Ephesians chapter 4 that helps us to see what it means to clothe ourselves with Christ. We're going to see some practical things that we should put off, as well as some practical things that we should put on. So I invite you to turn in your Bibles this morning to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians started as a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to Christians in the city of Ephesus. Ephesus is, it was on the western coast of what is now Turkey. And he's writing this letter basically as an orientation manual of how to live the Christian life. The book of Ephesians can be easily divided into two halves. The first half is deep theology of Christian beliefs, especially theology of the gospel. The gospel is the good news of what Jesus accomplished through his life, death, and resurrection. So it's, it's deep. It's theology. It makes our heads spin a little bit, but it, it clarifies to us what's been accomplished for us through Jesus. And then you get to the second half of Ephesians, chapters 4 through 6, and it becomes very practical, applying the gospel, applying the Christian values to our daily lives. And that's the part that we are in right now where we are seeing that gospel truths should lead to gospel living. So I invite you to follow along as I read Ephesians 4, picking up in verse 25. The Apostle Paul writes, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the, the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. So in this passage, we see a lot of different aspects of what it means to live life as a follower of Jesus. And specifically, Paul is talking about things that we need to put off, things that we need to put on. He's applying that passage that, that Mark talked about last week. And he lists out five different things that we need to put off and then five corresponding things we need to put on. Let's, let's talk through this list real quick. In verse 25, we see that we need to put off falsehood, especially in how we speak to others. Instead, we should speak truthfully. Verses 26 and 27 says that, that rather than sinful rage, when someone does something that hurts us or frustrates us, we should have controlled indignation. Verse 28 says, put off dishonest gain. Instead, put on honest labor. Verse 29 says, put off unwholesome speech. And, and instead, put on edifying speech. And finally, in verses 30 and 32 it says, put off hateful attitudes and actions, put on loving attitudes and actions. And so we see these five different examples of things that we are to put off and put something else on in their place if we are following Jesus. So it shows there is to be a new self, a transformation that takes place in how we live. 
Now, we're not going to focus on every single one of these today. I'm going to focus us in on a few of them specifically related to the topic of anger. Anger. Anger is a topic that is all around us. We've all experienced it. We look at the culture around us, and, and there is so much anger and animosity in our culture. I mean, we see it in politics all the time. We see it coming through the media. But we experience anger in our own lives as well. I mean, spouses get angry at each other. Children get angry at their parents. And parents get angry at their children as well. Employees get angry at their bosses and vice versa. And people even get angry at, at complete strangers. You're driving down the road and someone pulls out in front of you. It's easy to fly into a rage at that point. Or you feel like some salesperson has misled you on something and, and you get upset. And Christians frequently are getting angry about the changes that we see taking place in culture. And so anger is natural. Anger happens for all of us. And we have to understand as well that anger is certainly not a new phenomenon. Yes, we experience a lot of it in today's world, but it's certainly not new. I think of back in 350 B.C., Aristotle, the famous philosopher, said anyone can become angry. That is easy. But to be angry with the right person at the right time and for the right purpose and in the right way, that is not easy. Our world is filled with hostility and with anger. And as Aristotle points out and as we recognize, it is hard to handle our anger well. We have to understand that, that we, if we are following Jesus, are called to live in a new way, not to follow the ways of this world, not to get sucked in to the anger and the hostility and the bitterness and the demonizing that oftentimes characterizes the way of the world. Instead, we are called to handle things differently. And the Apostle Paul in this passage gives us some ways that we can handle our anger in a way that honors Christ. So I want to make five observations from this passage about how to handle anger in a way that is characteristic of our new self in Christ. And the first observation is that anger is not inherently sinful, but it easily turns into sin. And it says over in verse 26, be angry and do not sin. So it is possible to be angry without sinning. Now, what is anger? I think it's helpful to clarify. What is anger? When does anger come? Anger comes when we feel that something is wrong, especially when we have been wronged in some way. Anger is kind of like a, a flashing light on the dash of your car that indicates something needs to be addressed. Now, there may be a malfunctioning sensor in there, but the flashing light on the dash says something needs to be addressed. And that is a function of anger, alerting us that something is wrong, something needs to be addressed. But again, anger is not inherently sinful. And one of the ways we know this is that God gets angry, but he does not sin. Back in the Old Testament, the word for, that's translated anger in our English Bibles it appears 455 times. So 455 instances of anger or wrath occur in the Old Testament. Of those, 375 are related to God. Yet God is holy. He does not sin. So God is an example to us of someone who can be angry but without sin. 
Now, there are big differences, though, between how God handles anger and how we as humans so frequently handle anger. And one of the differences is that for God, when he is angry, is not out of control. He's not flying into some crazy, uncontrollable rage. Instead, God, when he is angry, is a controlled, intentional, rational response to sin. God never speaks or acts without thinking. We as humans, when we get angry, that happens all the time. That's frequently what gets us into trouble with our anger. But God, when he is angry over sin, his response is always intentional, is always rational, and is always done motivated by love to bring about repentance and restoration with him. And so that is a big difference between God's anger and our anger. So God can get angry without sinning, showing that the anger is not inherently sinful, but we are not God. And so it's so easy for our anger to turn into sin. I want to go back to the Aristotle quote where he said, anyone can become angry. That is easy. But to be angry with the right person at the right time and for the right purpose and in the right way, that is not easy. And those are a lot of different factors that can lead to anger becoming sinful. I mean, they're the wrong person or the wrong time or with, for the wrong purpose, the wrong motivation or in the wrong way. Those are all characteristics of anger that becomes sinful. Anger becomes sinful when it's directed at the wrong person or at the wrong time or for the wrong reason or in the wrong manner. Now again, Anger is not inherently bad. Anger can actually be a very good thing because anger over something that is wrong motivates us to take action to address that situation. If someone never feels anger, it means that they are so morally bankrupt that that they don't even notice when something is wrong. Anger is a good thing when it has an accurate compass for what's right and what's wrong, and when it responds at the right time in the right way. But the issue is we as humans mess this up all the time. Now I want to move on in this passage. That is one observation that anger is not inherently sinful, but it easily turns into sin. But Paul next addresses the timing of how to handle anger in a healthy way. Look, look with me back to verse 26. He says, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down. On your anger. And so one of the things that Paul is pointing out here is that we should deal with our anger directly and urgently. Deal with our anger directly and urgently. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. One of the things that can make anger sinful is that sinful anger lingers and it builds into bitterness and grudges and it builds up inside of us. That's why Paul tells us, you know what, when you are feeling angry about something, address it directly and address it urgently. So he's talking about there's a time limit for our anger. That we, we again, should, should address it quickly. Do not let the sun go down in your anger. He's saying, don't go to bed mad. He's saying, if you're angry, address it quickly. Try to, try to deal with it rather than just letting it fester under the surface there. Now, I think it is important to recognize that not all, uh, not all conflict, not all uh, difficult situations can be resolved before we go to bed at night. 
that, that isn't always realistic. There are some situations that may take days, may take weeks in order to resolve and get reconciliation. But Paul is telling us very clearly, if you're angry, don't let that anger fester. Deal with it. And, and one of the ways that we can deal with it when we feel angry about something is, first of all, to consider whether to overlook the offense. In, Psalm, or in Proverbs 19.11, it says, It is to a person's glory to overlook an offense. And so if we have someone do something or say something to us that, that you know, it, it hurts or it frustrates us, but if it's small enough that, uh, that it doesn't really need to disrupt the relationship, it's not a chronic issue that, that should be addressed because it's happening so frequently, we can choose to overlook it. And when we overlook an offense, that means that we forgive them in our heart and we move on. It doesn't mean that we store it up to bring up sometime later. It means that we forgive them. We, don't, we decide, you know what, I'm just going to overlook that. I'm going to move on. I'm not going to let this damage our relationship. And so that is always an option. If it's something that's not too big and not too chronic, that we can simply choose just to overlook the offense. And that's a way just to, to release our anger to God. Say, God, I'm going to forgive them of this. I'm going to move on. Now, there are certainly times, many times, when the issue at hand that makes us angry is too big to overlook. Or it's too chronic to overlook. It is damaging too many people to overlook. And so in those times, it's important to go directly to the person and seek reconciliation. This is exactly what Jesus tells us to do in Matthew chapter 18. Matthew 18, verse 15, he says, If your brother or sister sins against you, go and show them their fault just between the two of you. So he's, so he's saying, you know what, go directly to the person and seek reconciliation. Now our attitude in doing that makes a difference. Because if we go in there all blustery and with guns blazing, there's pretty much no way we're going to get reconciliation. We may get revenge, we may make them feel bad, but our attitude makes a big difference. We need to make sure that we are calm ourselves, at least that, that we are there for reconciliation, not revenge. That we go into that situation with humility. That we share honestly what our perspective in this, is in the situation. If we are hurt, express that. Do it honestly, do it humbly, listen to what they have to say, and again, seek reconciliation rather than revenge. Because if we are seeking revenge, it's going to just perpetuate that cycle of anger. But remember, we are to live with a new self, to clothe ourselves with Christ. And the way Jesus would have us handle our anger is different than the way the world would have us handle our anger. And so Paul is saying here, you know what, just go directly to that person if you need to seek reconciliation. When he says, don't let the sun go down in your anger, he's telling us, do not be passive. If you're angry, don't just bury it. Don't ignore it. Address it. I mean, you can choose to intentionally overlook the offense, but that is an intentional decision. But he's saying, don't be passive, because if you're a passive and you especially are upset with someone else, you feel like they've wronged you, what's going to happen if you bury the anger? It's going to sit there and fester. It's going to grow into bitterness. It's going to grow into a grudge. And it's going to manifest itself in some way or another. Frequently, if you're passive in addressing anger, it's going to come out in very passive, aggressive ways. They just perpetuate bitterness and grudges and hurt people all over the place. 
So the call here is not to be passive about the anger that we experience, but to actively address it. Perhaps just releasing it to God if we overlook the offense. Or go to the person and address it directly to seek reconciliation. Paul is saying, don't let the sun go down in your anger. Be intentional in addressing the anger so that it can be resolved. And, and so that you can move beyond that rather than letting it fester inside of you. Now another important thing when you're dealing with anger is to pray and to release the situation to God. Now sometimes we have to do this because even when we seek reconciliation, the reconciliation doesn't happen because reconciliation is a two-way street. The other person who you're seeking the reconciliation with has to be willing to uphold their side of that as well. So sometimes even when we seek reconciliation, it doesn't happen. And in those times, we need to pray and release that situation to God or else we're going to let that anger just keep festering and keep eating away at us from the inside. And that affects the way we live our lives in very negative ways. Now, over in 1 Peter chapter 2, we see a great example from Jesus on releasing unfair situations to God. 1 Peter 2.23 is speaking of Jesus and it says that when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. So this is referring especially to the time that Jesus was mocked and he was beaten and he was crucified. You look at how he handled that situation. He did not take revenge. He did not let the anger and the animosity that others were showing to him influence how he, he was relating back to them. He didn't return meanness for meanness. It said that he instead entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He was basically saying, God, my father, I'm going to trust you to take care of this. I'm not going to take vengeance into my own hands. And so that's a part of dealing with anger. Sometimes we have anger issues and situations that just fester. And they frustrate us and they keep us up at night. By all means, we should seek reconciliation. But whether we get the reconciliation to happen or not, the call is to pray and ask God to help us to release the situation to him. Trusting that even if we can't resolve it ourselves, God, I'm going to trust you to take care of it. I don't need to take it into my hands any longer. And so we are called to deal with our anger directly and urgently. Now I want to move on in this passage to, to look at another thing that Paul tells us that we need to do with our anger, and that is to use our words to build up and not to tear down. Look with me to verses 26 and 27 again. Uh, he said, Be angry, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down in your anger, and give no opportunity for the devil. Because, I mean, even that shows that if we continue to let anger fester, it gives a foothold of the devil in our lives to wreak havoc in our lives and in others' lives. And part of the way that wreaks havoc is through our words. And so Paul says in verse 29, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as it fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Now let me read that again, this time from a different translation. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. So Paul says, let no unwholesome talk come out of your mouths. Let no corrupting talk. That word, the original word that Paul was writing in Greek for corrupting or unwholesome is a word that means rotten. 
So you think of, of rotten fish. You think of rotten fruit that they would be experiencing back then. Paul is saying, you know what, don't be spewing rotten stuff at other people. You know, I don't know about you, but I don't want someone, like, throwing rotten fish at me. I don't want someone throwing rotten fruit at me. I mean, I don't want regular fish and regular fruit thrown at me either, but especially the rotten stuff. And Paul is saying, you know what, don't start throwing rotten words at people around you. And that's so easy to do when we are angry. But Paul says, you know what, use your words to build up, not to tear down. Basically saying, if you can't say something nice, don't say anything at all. I mean, many of us have probably heard that as we were growing up, but it's true and it's biblical. There's a, a really helpful verse in Psalm 141, verse 3, where the psalmist prays, Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. This is a prayer that recognizes that, you know what, I am so prone to saying things that should not be said. I am prone to letting unwholesome or corrupting talk come out of my mouth. Lord, set a guard over my lips. Filter what I say. Help me to know what is right to say and what is not. Help me to think before I speak. I picture this kind of as airport security. I mean, you know what that's like. You're you're going to get on an airplane. First, you have to go through security. And you have agents, you have scanners there. And what they are doing is trying to make sure that no destructive items get onto the airplane. I mean, you know what that's like. Um, I mean, they don't want knives or guns or bombs getting onto an airplane because they know that's going to cause all kinds of destruction. So they want to stop those items before they get through. In the same way, we need to stop the unwholesome or destructive or unhealthy talk from coming out of our mouths. Because otherwise it's going to wreak destruction in the lives of those around us in our own life as well. So we are called to filter what we say. To use our words to build up and not to tear down. Dorothy Neville, an author back in the 1800s, said that the real art of conversation is not only to say the right thing in the right place, but to leave unsaid the wrong things at the tempting moment. To leave unsaid the wrong things at the tempting moment. And when we are angry, it is so tempting to say things that should not be said. And so that's why we need that filter. So I want to make a deal with you all today. How about if we decide that from now on, we are only going to use our words to build people up and not tear people down. From now on, we're going to pledge ourselves that we are never again for the rest of our lives going to let anything that is mean-spirited or rude or sarcastic or anything like that come out of our mouths. Does that sound good? Is that a deal? Does that sound realistic? No. It's not realistic at all. Even though Paul does command us, don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths. It's not realistic because we still have the sinful nature inside of us that when we get angry and when we get frustrated, we want to spew unhealthy things. Things that make people feel bad. Things that, that vindicate us. And so we need something more than just a filter. Yes, we do need to filter our words, but we need something deeper. We need an internal transformation. And I want to go back to that passage that, that Mark was talking about last week. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 22 through 24. Paul says, Put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and is corrupt through the deceitful desires, 
and be renewed in the spirit of your minds and put on the new self created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. And so, so this is the idea of put off the old self, put on the new self. And so what this is talking about here is we need a transformation from the inside out. We need to be renewed in the spirit of our minds. Renewed in the spirit of our minds. We need a transformation. And, and the way this takes place is by internalizing the love and the grace of God. It's kind of like we all have a soundtrack that is playing through our mind. And different people's soundtrack sounds different. I mean, frequently it's unconscious, just mindsets and attitudes that are filtering through our minds. Sometimes, though, it enters our consciousness. For many people, the soundtrack that is playing through their minds is a soundtrack of bitterness and anger. And they can't help but let that come out in their words and actions and attitudes. For many others, the soundtrack that is constantly reverberating in their mind is a soundtrack of shame, of inadequacy. And then that comes through in how they live their lives as well. But God wants the soundtrack that is playing in our minds, that is transforming us from the inside out, to be the soundtrack of His love and His grace. And as we let God's love and grace infiltrate us, transform us from the inside out, that way we're not even tempted, or at least we're less tempted, to spew the ugly words. Yes, we still need that filter. But Jesus said, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. So if we experience that transformation inside of us with love and grace, then it helps us to speak wholesome, loving, gracious words to those around us. And this is so important because the Apostle Paul said that unhealthy expressions of anger grieve God. Over in, in our, back to our passage, Paul, Paul is talking about don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths. Verse 30, the very next verse says, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. Because when we spew unhealthy words, when we let anger fester and bitterness and grudges, it grieves God. Because it hurts us, it hurts people around us, and it certainly does not honor him either. If Christians are saying, you know what, I'm a Christian, I'm a follower of Jesus, I go to church and all that stuff. But if we are known to the people around us as people who are constantly just overflowing with anger and bitterness and grudges, that does not represent God well at all. It grieves his heart. And so we need to use our words to build up and not to tear down. And so we see in this passage the importance of putting on the new self, characterized by love and grace, and letting that transform how we deal, even with our angry situations around us. Now I want to move on in this passage to see what that looks like to be motivated by grace and love that comes from God. So I invite you to follow along. Ephesians 4, picking up in verse 31. The Apostle Paul says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. So these are things Paul says, put those off. Take those things off. Those are part of your old self. The anger, the malice, the bitterness, all that. Get rid of that. He says in verse 32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Picking up again in verse, uh, chapter 5, verse 1, the very next verse. 
Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and to walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So back in verse, verses 29, or, I'm sorry, 31 and 32, Paul is saying, forgive others like Jesus forgave you. Forgive others as Jesus forgave you. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. So that one of the best parts of the gospel message, which is the good news of what Jesus accomplished for us, is forgiveness. This is one of the ways that we see the gospel truths lead to gospel living. And if you're a follower of Jesus, if you have placed your faith in Christ for salvation, trusting in, in Jesus to reconcile you with God rather than trusting in your own good works to reconcile you with God, you are a Christian. And that makes you one of the most forgiven people in the entire world. I mean, think about that for a minute. If your faith is in Christ, you are one of the most forgiven people in the entire world. And that should make us forgiving people as well. Because we are the most forgiven people in the entire world, we should also be the most forgiving people in the world. Letting the forgiveness of God that comes to us through faith in Jesus, be, we, we should be like a conduit. His love and forgiveness flows into us and through us into the people around us. We are forgiven people if our faith is in Christ, and we are called to be forgiving people. Now, I'm, to illustrate this point, I'm going to unashamedly use a story that I've used many times before here. And I used it just a couple weeks ago. And I know that I could probably pull some of you up here and you could tell the story for us. But to save any embarrassment of missing details and stuff, I'm going to tell the story again. So, Bob, why don't you put the picture up there of what the story is about? Back just after I was out of college, I was on staff with the campus ministry. I'd been on staff at that campus for two weeks. And we were on a leadership retreat, and I needed to run out to the store early one morning, and I asked uh, an older staff woman, Erica, if I could borrow her car. All-wheel drive Subaru. I, I needed to get it out of the driveway, kind of blocked in. I thought, I'm going to take it through that ditch filled with snow. Didn't work. Got stuck in there. I felt absolutely horrible. I had to go back in the house and tell Erica, Erica, have you looked out the window? I got your car stuck in the snow. She had no idea I was even going to drive it through the yard. I felt horrible. But she gave me such tremendous grace and compassion and forgiveness in that moment. That that stuck with me so deeply. Now fast forward a few years. I was lending my truck to a friend, Eric. So you have Erica and now you have Eric. Two different people, different towns, stuff like that. Eric was borrowing my truck. It was taking a little bit longer than I thought it probably should be. He called me on the phone and said, Brandon, uh, I got into a little accident with your truck. Now, what was the soundtrack that was playing through my mind as I'm on the phone with Eric and he said, I got into a little accident with your truck? Instantly, what went through my mind was rewinding a number of years to Erica and the grace and the mercy and the forgiveness that she gave me when I got her car stuck. Yes, getting a car stuck in the ditch is a little bit different than getting in a fender bender, but even still, it was that soundtrack of forgiveness. I had been forgiven in a similar instance, forgiven freely and graciously, and that soundtrack of, of forgiveness had been given to me. Then I was able to pour that out to Eric. And I mean, it was amazing for him to receive that as well. It was amazing to be able to, to show that forgiveness to someone else freely and not freak out, not get angry, 
but to be for, give forgiveness. But that's what happens. When we understand that we have been forgiven so much, it makes us forgiving to those around us. And that's what Paul says, that we should forgive one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. Now, there are a lot of misperceptions out there of what forgiveness is. Let me tell you just four promises that we make when we say that we forgive someone. This comes from uh, a guy named Ken Sandy who wrote a book called The Peacemaker. When we forgive someone, we are essentially telling them that I will not dwell on this incident any longer. And that I will not bring up this incident again and use it against you. We are promising when we forgive someone that we will not talk with others about this incident. And that we will not let this incident hinder our relationship. Those are the promises that we are making when we tell someone that we forgive them. Now, there may still be consequences if, if someone has wronged us. Even if we forgive them, they, there may still be consequences. There may still be accountability. But these are the promises that we make when we forgive someone. Because this is how God has treated us when we come to faith in Christ. Complete forgiveness. He's not going to leverage our sin against us because he's forgiven us. Ken Sandy, uh, the same author, he said that unforgiveness is the poison we drink hoping that someone else will die. Unforgiveness is the poison we drink hoping someone else will die. If we are withholding forgiveness from someone, if we are letting anger and bitterness fester in us, it's like a tumor. Because if you have a tumor that's inside of you and you ignore it, it's not going to go away. It's just going to grow. And it's eventually going to kill you. In the same way, Paul says, you know what, if you let anger and bitterness fester inside of you, it's going to kill you. It's a poison in you. Now the treatment to take out a tumor, to address it, may hurt a lot. In the same way, it may hurt to have to address anger and to release bitterness and to seek reconciliation and to offer forgiveness. That may hurt. It may not be comfortable. But that's where we get life. That's healthy. That allows us to honor Christ and to gain freedom from the anger that may have entrapped us. Now, one more thing I want to point out in this passage is that when we display love and forgiveness, we are imitators of God. Look with me to verses 1 and 2 of chapter 5. Paul says, Therefore be imitators of God as dearly loved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. You know, when we sin, sin does separate us from God in our natural state. But when we come to faith in Christ, God no longer holds our sin against us. He doesn't shun us because of our sin. Instead, he welcomes us back to him with open arms and with full forgiveness. And that forgiveness was purchased with a great sacrifice that Jesus made on the cross. And when we extend love and forgiveness to others, as God has shown to us, we become imitators of God. I think of the song Reckless Love that we sing here at church. It says, Oh, the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God. Oh, it chases me down, fights till I'm found, leaves the 99. I couldn't earn it. I don't deserve it. Still, you give yourself away. This is the love of God that he's lavished on us. This should be a soundtrack that is playing in our minds. Another soundtrack that should be playing in our minds is Amazing Grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. If we let these soundtracks of God's love and grace flow through our minds and transform our hearts, then we will be able to embody 
the new self. Love and grace and forgiveness that flows through us into those around us. You know, if you see me biking down the road, you will see me wearing something that looks pretty much identical to that. I wear bright yellow anytime I'm biking on the road. So, so when you see me biking down the road, you'll see me wearing something like this. When you see a bride coming down the aisle at her wedding, you'll see her wearing something like this. How will people see Christians living in the world around us? We have to be intentional to put off the anger and the hostility and the bitterness and the animosity that so characterizes our world. And we have to instead put on the new self that is characterized by love, by grace, and by forgiveness. Because by doing so, we not only imitate God, but we glorify him to the world around us. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that you lavish love on us so richly and so generously. A love that we can never earn, that we can never deserve, but we say thank you. And Lord, I pray that each one of us will receive that love and mercy into our lives, that it'll become the soundtrack that is constantly playing in our minds, and that as we face situations that rub us the wrong way, whether that they're perceived wrong is, is justifiable or not, Lord, help us to handle our anger and our frustration in healthy ways, in ways that honor you, in ways that reflect how you treat us, Lord. I know that all of us face hard situations. It's easy to talk about these things in theory. It's much harder to actually put them into practice. But Lord, help us not be passive when it comes to dealing with hard situations. But help us to take the initiative, to have the hard conversations. Maybe to choose to overlook the offense by forgiving them in our heart. Lord, help us to be ambassadors of reconciliation. Men and women who embody the gospel to those around us. Lord, I pray that we will not be characterized by rudeness, by meanness, by hostility, by re revenge, by bitterness and grudges, but help us to release these things by the power of the Holy Spirit. Because, Lord, we can't do this ourselves. But I pray that your Holy Spirit will do a transforming work in us and through us to empower us to extend love and mercy and forgiveness to those around us, just as you've so lavishly and overwhelmingly shown to us. We pray these things in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.